0: Well, this morning uh, we are kicking off a new series uh, looking at the letter of First Peter. So, if you have a Bible, I invite you to start thinking about flipping there. Uh, this is a series that we've been kind of thinking about and praying about for quite a while. I, I was mentioning to someone in between the services. I think I, I I picked up some resources to preach this series about a year and a half ago. So it's kind of been it's kind of been percolating, and and I think the time is finally right. And I, I said to our elders over the summer, I said, "Here's." here's the plan for preaching for the spring, and here's the summer plans, but in the fall, where do we go? And try to just ask the open-ended question, and I was like, guys, we're in this together. I don't want to make all these decisions myself, so pray, and let's talk about where we're headed, and, and this is kind of where we feel like at this time, it is, it's, it's time to go to. So we're going to be in First Peter. Uh, At this point in in our lives, I I think we are living in a cultural moment that I can't even figure out the right word to put on it. It's it's just like, I don't have a word to put on it. Much of of the the media around it, whether you're on social media, whether you look at the, the, the magazines at the grocery store, the print media, TV, all the things, the world around us puts so much pressure on ourselves to keep up. How many, like, diet and weight loss magazines are at the at the the tills right or landscaping or th- the new skis are released i saw on social media say, like, well chateau mountain sports has their new atomics. like oh great another thing to, Right? we've got all this pressure to keep up with all these new things how to to succeed and that that darn definition of success seems to change just as the moment i try to get a, a handle on it not get there even but just try to figure out what it is it shifts and it changes we're supposed to just live our best life and, 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 and go for it. And, and no matter where we look, whether it's up and down our street, whether it's online, no matter where we look, somebody's beating us. And so we've got these internal stress drivers that our, our world puts on us and says, you should be keeping up. And if you're not keeping up, you're falling behind. So get on it. And some days it just feels when I, like when I start to think about these things, it feels hard to breathe. Like, Man, my neighbors are doing this. This guy's younger than 40, and he's doing this. These kids are here. And it just goes on and on and on, right? And now we're just on our way out. I think we can say we're on our way out of a, of a COVID season where we've had this external pressure put on us as well. Where Nothing in, in my history has, has challenged and, and put boundaries and limits on what I want to do or feel like I should be able to do like the last couple of years, so we've got these internal stresses. Then we've got this, this no. And it doesn't matter where you land in the COVID spectrum of what, what's just happened. It's been different. It's messed with us. And so we've got these internal pressures. We've got these external pressures. And above that, we live in a time that everyone just seems so angry about everything. And I think it's the adding stresses both put on ourselves by ourselves and by the world around us that we don't know how to deal with properly, and so it comes out when somebody cuts me off on the road. We live in a time, and and everybody's angry, and beyond that, everybody's so divisive, it seems. We've got these factions that just seem to be moving apart from each other, And the walls between them seem to be getting higher and if you dare not fall in line with one or the other you just get pushed farther apart we're angry we're divisive we're uncertain we're heated man this is a funny time so what are we gonna do well I think we have two options we can either go with the flow and be angry divisive heated and just grab whatever we can out of life and do the best we can for ourselves and think about me and what I need to do. Fight every fight. Everything that you see that you don't agree with, you get loud and you go after it, all that. Or, I think there's an alternative. We can recognize who we actually are. And if you are with us last week, you remembered, we said, where does the gospel start? Not with I'm a sinner in need of a savior, but where does it start? In the beginning, God made us in his image male and female he made us in his image when we think that's that's who i am that's where my value comes from that's where my purpose comes from we will live a completely different life and so i'm hopeful that this series as we walk through this letter will be a really practical will give us lots of of, of new way maybe not new but reminders and how to think so that we can overcome the world because of the person and work of Jesus. Because it's all about him. Back in the the 40s and 50s, there was a preacher named Martin Lloyd Lloyd Jones. And the church that that he led was dealing with, I think, somewhat similar circumstances in another time. So they were a little bit different, but similar stresses. They just kind of come out of World War II and, and life was chaos because of that. But out of World War II comes the threat of nuclear war and the Cold War and and all the stresses that come out of that as well. And, And during that time, he wrote these words. He said, the greatest need of men and women in this world is a need for what's called a quiet heart. A heart at leisure from itself. He says, isn't that what we're all looking for? We call it peace or peace of mind or peace of heart. It's called tranquility. This this is the question at the heart of every single human being. Every single one of us, as we go through life, is trying to answer this question. How do I find peace? How do I wrap my fingers around this, this, this elusive thing called tranquility? And whether we realize it or not, this is a question that every one of us faces that every one of us is aiming to try and find an answer. It's, how do I get a quiet heart? How do I find my joy in life? How am I going to find meaning and purpose and identity? And there's all sorts of answers out there to this question, aren't there? We could look out the front door and find a hundred different answers. Some uh, scientism would say, you know what, we as a culture, we're going to attain peace because we're going to keep progressing. And all of our problems will be solved by science. We've seen some of the limitations of that lately as well, haven't we? Humanism might say, you know what, we're generally good. We only need to trust in ourselves and we'll figure it out. Religion would say, if you're a good person, then maybe your god or gods will smile on you. Escapism, which is sometimes where I find myself, full disclosure, says, just stop thinking about hard questions. Why stress about these things? Optimism would say, just go out and live your best life now. Grab everything that's good, hang on to as much positive thinking as you can, and all your problems will go away. Mysticism might say, just relax, just just aim for peace with the universe, just go for another walk, go for another hike one of the key, whether people realize it or not, one of the key sort of beliefs in our world today, expressive individualism says forget what anyone else is saying. Whatever you think is true for you is true for you. Go after that. Now here's the problem with every single one of those answers and dozens of others like it. The weight of the question and the onus on finding peace is on who? Me. Us. It puts all of that weight of an eternal question on our little weak, frail, temporal shoulders. And it will crush us. Because we'll never be enough. We can never do enough. So, what I want to propose is that 1 Peter actually gives us a far better way to deal with these big, huge, massive existential questions. And in fact, not only are we going to learn how to deal with the questions, but we're going to get some answers here as well. The letter speaks to our souls, and it speaks to our search for, and our need for meaning, and identity, and comfort, and even peace. That's what Peter wants to write about here. So if you have your Bible, again, open up the First Peter. It's right near the end of your New Testament. If you've got digital, you just scroll down and find a Google search, First Peter. If you've got a paper, it's right near the end. There's 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. So right near the end of the Bible there. Let's dive in. 1 Peter 1, 1. Read this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Common start to a letter, unlike today where we write, Dear John, Letters in those days started with, who is authoring this thing? And so Peter is telling us, I'm writing this, and I this is who I am. Here's what we need to remember, though, as we jump into a letter authored, signed by Peter. Who was he? Well, he was a disciple of Jesus, right? That's an important thing. One of the 12. But even within Jesus' 12 disciples, he was kind of a part of Jesus' inner circle of three, right? Peter, James, and John. And even in the midst of that three, Peter was kind of even the face of the three. So he was like, I don't want to say a super disciple, but he was he was kind of like Jesus' closest disciple, I think, of the 12. I think that's reasonable to say. And so he's got some some clout because of that, I think. When he writes something, we should probably listen. What else do we know about Peter? He messed up a lot, which gives me great hope. His story with Jesus so often is about two steps forward and one step back and then two steps forward and three steps back and it just on and on it went as he tried to figure out who Jesus was and tried to understand what Jesus was teaching. There's one point where Jesus asked the disciples, maybe you remember this, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some people are saying maybe you're you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead, you're a prophet, you're one of the prophets that's come back. He says, no, okay, forget that though. Who do you guys say that I am? And Peter, brash, steps up, sometimes opens his mouth before he uses his brain. But here he gets it right. He says, you're the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Jesus says, yes, Peter, you've got it. For what, whatever you think that means, you've got it. But what happens moments later? Jesus is saying, okay, now well, here's the plan, boys. We're going to end up in Jerusalem. It's not going to go well for me there, but this is part of the plan. And Jesus says, no, we will, or Peter says, no, we'll never let you go there. We, we got to protect you from that. And what does Jesus say to Peter who has just got it right says Jesus you're the messiah get behind me satan poor peter right he, he he he's really impulsive and like this is the story of his life the night that Jesus was arrested he grabs a sword and chops off someone's ear i mean nothing to say nothing about his aim it's probably not what he was trying to do right but like where did he learn from Jesus that this was going to be okay It's not a thing. A few hours later, he denies even knowing Jesus three times, right? Like, Peter's walk, his journey is like this the whole time, and it gives me great hope. Because after the resurrection, Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who preaches, and 3,000 come to faith. It's not spirit working through Peter, right? A couple of chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are in in front of a court, and they're they're again sharing the gospel. They're making a defense for why they've been arrested for talking about Jesus. And the people around them say, who do you think you are? You're just a plain, ordinary fisherman. How can you possibly speak this well? It says, but they recognized that these men had been with Jesus, right? Now it's it's that incidence in Acts 4 that, that leads some kind of more modern scholars to say, I wonder if Peter actually wrote this. Like, may did did, did Peter actually write 1 Peter, or was this kind of a collection of thoughts that seemed to be like maybe Peter? We could we could just kind of tradition said it was Peter. But here's how we overcome that, I think. If Peter could Throw off a court by speaking that well, despite being an ordinary, uneducated fisherman. Why couldn't he write just as well? By being used by God to do that. That's who we have, Peter. He gives himself the title in this letter, an apostle of Jesus. This is this is a, a, a title that means he's a messenger of Jesus. He's got a unique authority having been with Jesus. And he has been commissioned by God to write this letter and to lead his church. And so these words are not just Peter's words that he thought was, was good and well and might be an encouragement to the church, but this is actually God speaking through Peter to the churches. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. The region he's describing to us is is modern-day Turkey today, and this letter was written and intended to circulate from church to church. Peter can't be everywhere at once. He can't jump online and live live stream his messages to his churches. They can't gather around Zoom and, and encourage one another that way. So he's got to write a letter, and the plan would be this would go to the church in Pontus, and they'd spend some time with it, and they'd be encouraged and challenged and taught by it. And then they'd move it on to the next one, to Galatia, and the same thing would happen, and the same thing would happen, and it would keep going around and around. But look at how he describes who he's writing to as well. And there's The beautiful thing about English is we've got just a glut of translations. Some are better than others, and there's reasons we should use some and not others, or we should be be cautious about what translation we read. But here's just a few different translations of this verse. First he says, the chosen ones living as exiles. The New Living Translation says, God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. The, the English Standard Version says elect exiles. I'm running to the elect exiles in these places. Others might say strangers or sojourners or pilgrims. All of these words are, are appropriate and, and, and fit here. And so maybe if you 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 come from a church tradition where the word elect carries a bit of baggage for you, sub it out at this point. Think chosen. Peter is highlighting that to those who are reading this letter, were chosen by God to be a part of this church. And this is just just such an important theme throughout this letter. A little bit of a, a Bible quiz here. If we go back to the Old Testament, who were God's chosen people? Israel, the Jews, right? Chosen by God to be a light to the world. People could convert to Judaism and be brought into the fold, but it was primarily God's chosen people were Israel. We're in the New Testament. We've got this list of places where Peter is writing to in Turkey. Guess how many Jews are there? Not many. Something has happened. God's chosen people are no longer just the line of Abraham and the House of Israel. Everybody's welcomed in. He's writing primarily to a non-Jewish audience, and this is really good news for all of us who are not Jewish. Every single one of us today who is looking for meaning, purpose, value, identity and peace in and through the church, right at the outset of this letter, Peter says, "Hey, you're chosen. Just sit under that word for a second. Chosen. There's another word there as well, isn't there? Chosen exiles. Now again if we have some history with the Bible we may remember that for a large part of the Old Testament that Israel lived as exiles. Do you remember why they were exiled? They moved in, they got their kingdom, they were under David, the kingdom split and then a few generations later they were what? Conquered. Exiled far away. Why why was that? They worshiped other gods. They were disobedient. They were given, here's how you relate to me. God says to his people, I've done this for you. Now here's how you relate to me. And I said, well, that sounds good, God, but we're going to try this too, and this too, and this too. And so it was a consequence. It was a punishment. But when we come here, when we come to 1 Peter, there is no hint at all that this title of being called an exile in this verse has anything to do with being punished for sin. Not at all is speaking something completely different. This idea here of either being an exile or a sojourner or a pilgrim or a dispersed one is about this church living where they are, in their own homes, in their own lands, but the world around them finding their faith so off-putting and strange that they feel like aliens. Because they're chosen now they're exiles because they're 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 chosen they feel like strangers in their own land. this hasn't hasn't changed much in 2000 years i would suggest now for the bulk of my life and probably many of our lives we've had it pretty easy in north america in canada in the u.s in the west in general to the point where lots of people who write about First Peter say, I don't know that we can consider U.S. and culture and American culture, North American culture, as living as exiles, because we really just kind of fit in, right? This is really starting to shift. And if you look at most of the world, man, this speaks right at the heart. If you're trying to follow Jesus in Asia or much of Africa or South America, so many places, you'll stand up. But because we've been chosen by God and brought into his family, bit of a spoiler for the rest of the letter, sorry about that, we will be exiles, sojourners, strangers and aliens, because this world is no longer our home. Now, this doesn't mean that we step into that role and actively go out looking for fights, as some seem to want to do, Peter will address that later in ways that might make us feel uncomfortable. That's okay. But it does mean that the way that we prioritize our lives, the things that are most important to us, the things that we devote our time, talent, and energy may frankly leave the world around us scratching their heads. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. And Peter knows this. It's true then, it's true now. And that's why he's writing. These churches he's writing to, they're not exiles in the sense that that they've had conflict and they've been kicked out of their homeland. They're living in their home still. But instead, their their way of living is so foreign to their neighbors now that it seems incomprehensible. You know, in the early church, the Romans actually thought that the Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in any Roman god. So how, how can they... What's going on here? They would actually bring Christians up on charges of atheism because they didn't worship any of the Roman gods. We have letters, and I was looking at a couple even last night, Google's amazing, from Roman officials from some of these cities in the first and second century, saying they don't know what to do with these Christians. They don't worship our gods. They're like welcoming and accommodating. They care for the sick. They care for the poor. They even care for our sick and our poor. Not even their own, like, like sex. They care for people. They care about people for some reason. It's crazy. The way that we live, the way that the Bible calls to live, it, it's still hard to live today and it still makes people ask questions. What do you mean you're not just going to retire to the beach? What do you mean you're going to give up every Sunday? There's only a few good Sunday mornings left and you're going to go sit in a hot stuffy room and listen to someone talk for too long? What do you mean? What do you mean you're going to give away a chunk of your money? That's yours. You earned it, darn it. What do you mean you're not going to spend your weekend just going out and, and and eating too much and drinking too much and smoking and doing drugs, whatever that might be? Why wouldn't you do that? Here's one that's heavy. What do you mean that sex is for a man and a woman who are married to each other? Peter's saying it then, and I'm saying it now, too, and he's saying it now. He says, I, I get it. It's hard really hard, but he also says, don't forget that you're chosen. How many of us focus on that title of chosen exiles, chosen aliens, focus on the exile or alien part, and just the weight of that on our shoulders? Full truth, I've been, I've been wrestling with that a lot lately, especially the last couple of weeks, with, with just wondering, like, the things I, I say I believe, and I do believe, like, I don't even know where to start conversations sometimes. I don't even know how to how to ask questions about some of the things that are that our, our, our town, our, our culture, values at the because I risk like if I say this the wrong way, I'm gonna have this title heaped on me potentially. And like I, I don't know how to kindly discuss worldviews. And gosh, it just Helps me to feel alien. Here's the encouragement. Don't just be a stranger. Be a stranger, of course, but remember, we're chosen strangers. One commentator I read this week, Tom Schreiner, really helpfully said this and helped me kind of start to wrestle through some of these things. He said, to those who understand themselves as God's chosen people, Those who understand themselves as God's chosen people have the ammunition to resist the norms and culture of the society they inhabit. God just doesn't say, I want you to live like that, good luck, and then kind of retreats. What was the last thing Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew, right? I'll be with you, always, to the end of the age. He goes on and says, Divine election, or, or being God's chosen people, reminds the readers of this letter and us today that they have a status, not because they're so worthy or noble, but because God has bestowed his grace upon him. Hence, they have the energy to counter acceptable cultural norms and live in accordance of, with God's purpose. My, my word for us this week, if you get nothing else, is Chosen. But God's chosen people. He, Peter carries on. We've almost made it through verse 1 of the letter. We'll probably speed up as we go on, but no guarantees. In verse 1, he said he was writing to the chosen people in these areas. He says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. now he kind of he really digs deep into the how and the why that we've been chosen doesn't he he gives us kind of three points uh, according to the foreknowledge of the father to the sanctifying work of the spirit to be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of jesus this this is massive we could spend a week or more on each one of those three things we won't they're big deep concepts but notice the whole trinity plays a role right we've got Father, Son, and Spirit here. There are people who criticize the Bible and Christians and the doctrine of Trinity by saying the word Trinity never shows up in the Bible. Okay. We can go to any number of passages where Father did this, Spirit does this, the Son does that. Our benediction has it in it too, doesn't it? From Ephesians chapter three. Jesus' baptism has all three together as well, right? Like, it's there. So again, as English speakers, we have a a glut of translations. So let me reread that passage in the New Living Translation because I think it might help sort of help us understand some of these big concepts. He says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. There's that foreknowledge of the Father. The Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's one thing you pick up from this verse in addition to the chosen from verse 1. Notice that this is all very intentional. God's plan was never just thrown together as if some accident happened and he need to, to reroute. There is nothing that you or I could do or or all of us together could do to surprise God and make him have to come up with another plan. This is the plan. And it always has been. And it always will be. And look at how, again, look at how the triune, the three-in-one God works together here. We've got the foreknowledge of the Father. This is is not less, but it's much more than just that God knew who he would pick. This isn't like lining up at recess to play dodgeball or soccer and then you get two captains and then then you they pick and somebody gets left out or left to the end and then they hate dodgeball and soccer for the rest of their lives because of these mean captains in elementary school still working through some things maybe it's way more than just god just picking for no reason this language has to do with with god giving of his promised covenantal love to his people When God makes a promise, he's he's good for it. And so when he promises his love, he's good for it. And that's what we're talking about here. Later in this letter, we'll we'll see the same language used for God knowing that Jesus would come. This is part of the plan. And so what Peter is getting at here with this phrase is an emphasis on God being in control of all things. And that it's his initiating that makes this choosing that makes this saving work possible we're chosen not because we're good at anything but we're chosen because god loves us and he loves us because he created us in his his image that's it not because we're so talented not because we're so wealthy not because we're so disciplined not because any other number of things we got the foreknowledge of the father next we see the sanctifying of the spirit this is a word sanctifying is a word that refers to kind of the progressive growth of holiness in a Christian's life. It's talking about the journey that we're all on towards Jesus, and then to look more like Jesus. And so here, especially in this text, the way Peter is is talking about it is he's talking about the start of that journey, our initial conversion, our initial being chosen and giving and committing our lives to Jesus. And so he's saying that the Spirit has done a work in us to get us even to that point. As soon as we put our faith in the gospel for the first time, as soon as we do that, we become part of God's chosen, set-apart, and holy people. And the Spirit plays a role in that. He draws us to himself. He works in our hearts. There's nobody that has come to Jesus under their own volition. Nobody just read a book by themselves and said, well, this seems all right. Away they go. It's always the Spirit at work through a person, through a textbook, sure, no problem, through the Bible, of course, all these things, but the Spirit is always playing a role in this. He draws us in, and he works in our hearts. The last piece says that we become, we are obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. We're still talking about conversion here, okay, that, that coming to faith kind of moment, and there's two parts. There's, there's the believer's obedience in the sentence, and there's Jesus' cleansing and forgiveness, and so he's reminding us here that we actually can't follow Jesus and look the same as we did before we started following Jesus. A conversion isn't just believing something intellectually, some, some propositions that someone has said, well, this makes sense that God did this and Jesus did this, and so now it's so much more to that. It is submitting your whole life to that. It, it costs. Things change probably probably a lot that's the obedience part then talks about blood and Jesus blood it's a little bit icky for us again back in those first decades of the Christian Church the early Christians were thought of as as cannibals as well because people who were kind of on the outside outside and and heard what they did or heard what happened at their meetings like well they, they get together they share this thing then they eat some dead guy's flesh drink his blood like what what's going on In the Old Testament, remember, in order to be uh, forgiven from sin, there's a whole sacrificial system set up, right? An innocent animal had to give up its blood, had to die so that we could find forgiveness. But now we have Jesus, the true and better once-for-all sacrifice. And the blood that he shed on the cross is what has paid the price for our sin. And makes us clean, and new, and holy. This is the plan. The Father foreknows; He knew it was going to go on. Spirit sanctifies, helps work on things in our lives, and the sun cleanses. And Peter's intro ends with just a beautiful greeting, and it's common to the to the time as well. But it just it. It just seems so deep. These two verses, even though they're, they're, they're written in the style of the day, they're just so deep and thick and rich, and it ends just the same way. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Here's my sort of paraphrase, off-the-cuff, maybe translation, not translation, paraphrase, of these first couple of verses. Hey, churches, it's Peter. You may remember me as with Jesus. Maybe we've visited before. I just want to remind you, in the midst of everything you're going through, you're chosen people. You are God's chosen people. And I know that, that that means that you're feeling like like strangers or exiles or foreigners, even in your own homes. Maybe, you probably never moved. You've grown up here. Your whole family's grown up here forever, and now you just feel like you don't fit. I know it feels like you're made for another place. You are. But listen, God knows. You're not alone. This is his plan. And he's given you all the tools you need to live right where you are. And not just live, not just get by, He's given you everything you need to, to thrive and to live an abundant life. The one that he promised, the one that Jesus promised. He knows you. He's working on you. He's working in you. He's working through you. And Jesus has made you new. Don't forget that. And hey, listen, I'm just praying that God will just give you more and more and more of his grace. And that you would just recognize more and more and more of his mercy as well. And that you would just, because of that, just be filled with more and more and more peace. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for this letter. Thank you for the life of Peter and the work you did in him to, to take him from ordinary, uneducated fisherman to a disciple, to kind of the head of the disciples, to an apostle who spoke with courage and boldness about all that you had done in his life. I pray that we would continue to learn from him today. I pray that as we, we go, that we would be reminded that we are your chosen people, that you've called us to something, And remind us that when it's hard to live out what you've called us to, you're with us. Help us to receive your grace and peace this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.